Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up. Today's show focuses exclusively on this week's features from the WFUV Newsroom. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Christina Lulich. And here are this week's feature stories. This week marked the 22nd anniversary of the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center here in New York City. Nearly 3,000 people lost their lives in the terrorist attacks on that day, but their stories live on through the memories and history preserved in their honor. To commemorate the tragic events, the 9-11 Memorial and Museum held special programming to honor the lives lost at Ground Zero. I spoke with Museum Director Clifford Channon to learn more about how the museum works to preserve the stories of the lives lost on 9-11. Can you just tell me a little bit about the work you guys do at the museum? The museum itself, which has been open now for nearly 10 years, has really grown extraordinarily. But we've also developed a range of programs that uh, really take us around the world in terms of the lessons of 9-11, the story of 9-11, the story of the people. And so, for example, today, as on every anniversary day, we do something called a digital learning experience, which is a recorded film that we make each year, a new one thematically organized around people's stories of their 9-11 day that is then distributed to schools around the country and around the world. And on the day itself, these many kids who have watched this can go online for a live chat with a dozen or more of our staff members who spend the day answering questions from young people for whom this is history that is unknown. And so obviously our responsibility has a lot to do with commemoration, but over the years we've learned increasingly that education is a critical part of commemoration. You know, for somebody who wasn't there of my generation to remember what exactly happened, I'm curious, what do you remember most about that day? Well, I was home in Brooklyn across the river and, uh, you know, quite close to lower Manhattan. Actually had plans to go into the city that morning, but the Brooklyn Bridge was blocked as I was approaching it, which was when the second plane hit the South Tower. It's still hard to fathom what actually happened. But for me, the most sort of powerful memory of the day was a little bit later uh, that morning, the smoke was blowing our way in Brooklyn from Lower Manhattan, and my kids were coming back from school. And I will never forget the kids emerging from that cloud of smoke and the recognition seeing them. The world had changed. Their world in particular had changed. We did not know what was going to happen. I can only imagine, like, being the director of the museum, the stories that you've heard from people coming from around the city. I I wonder, have any of their stories really stuck out to you? The full premise of the museum really is the first-person account of whatever someone did on that day. But the one I'm thinking about today, because uh, one of the participants in the story is here as a member of the NYPD Pipe and Drum Band. Uh, This is an emergency service NYPD officer, Patty McGee, who now retired, but nonetheless responded. He tells the story of being underground 20 feet, 30 feet with the degree shifting, with the fire coming up around them, and the commitment that he and those other three, who were another ESU cop, a Marine, and an EMT, the commitment that they made simply to stay there and do what eventually they did, which was to rescue Officer Will Jimeno of the PAPD. It's an extraordinary story, and it tells so much about 
the nature of the response on 9-11, particularly first responders and what they did above and beyond what anybody would ever have imagined that they would be asked to do. That was my co-host David Escobar speaking with Clifford Channon, the director of the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. This month, the WFUV Newsroom is highlighting stories of the people being impacted by book bans and exploring how and why these bans arise in the first place. John Green's Looking for Alaska, George Decay's They Called Us Enemy, and George M. Johnson's All Boys Aren't Blue are just some of hundreds of books that have recently been banned in states across the country, despite being about very different things. This week, WFUV's Jay Doherty speaks with PEN America's Sabrina Baeta to learn more about banned books and free expression. Sabrina, could you start by telling us about PEN America and its mission in the context of free expression and combating censorship? PEN America is a literary nonprofit. Um, it stands at the intersection between free expression and human rights. So in terms of looking at free expression in the United States, we're looking at any kind of censorship um, of stories in a lot of different media forms. For me specifically, we're looking at censorship of K-12 public schools, and right now, largely, that looks like book bans. A study from PEN America says that last year, over 2,600 books were banned. And given all your expertise in censorship, I want to ask a very simple question. What sets these roughly 2,600 books apart from the 4 million books that were published that year? There are some difficult topics in these books, and I think people have very emotional reactions at first to that. Um, I would say go read the books. Um, that would probably be my second tip. One, it's always just great to read a good book, and these are really wonderful, great books. But also go see what this is actually about. Read that content and figure out why that was available to a student. And um, and we'll always find 10 out of 10 times that that book is really important to at least one student. So I would say go engage with your local community and then go read a good book. So it seems to me that often discussions about banned books can overlap with talks about democracy and representation, especially in the context of public schools. So currently, who has the final say over what can be put on a classroom bookshelf, and who do you think should have the final say? Book bans as an issue is a hot topic right now, um, and rightfully so, just because we're seeing a lot of censorship in K-12 through schools, uh, what we, we like to consider the ed scare. But this process of collections and uh, gathering books together, either in school um, libraries or in classroom libraries, is obviously something that's been happening uh, for decades. There are, you know, certain parameters and the collections um, are cultivated by expert librarians who many times have master's degree in library sci sciences, um, understand pedagogically what students need access to, um, and have that first pass at what is available to students. The difference here is that we're seeing these large groups of people who are coming in and want to dictate what is available to a wide swath of students, an entire school, an entire district, an entire state. And we're also seeing state interference. And that is really where the censorship, um, the censorship is always an issue, but why we're seeing this as a large movement rather than just individual instigators is because this is happening on a huge scale and affecting all students. So, like you said, there's a group of people who want to apply a controversial set of rules that impact large groups of students. What else makes this movement unique? Absolutely. And it's the coordinated fashion of this movement that these are not individuals who became aware of certain books and want to remove them, but that 
these are organized groups. And then now we're starting to see state legislation um, that is making a huge sweeping impact um, in creating both very real systems of censorship, but also then fostering self-censorship and the chilling effect um, of censorship across schools. And finally, are there any success stories where communities or PEN America have rallied against book bans and the issues have actually been resolved in any way? There are tons of stories um, out there, uh, which is really uplifting. We hear a lot about the negative. And I will say there is this is a very coordinated movement. But there are we always like to say that wherever there are book bans, there are people fighting book bans. There are so many people on the ground who are fighting this movement and working really hard in their own local districts to be able to make sure that books are unbanned or that they remain on shelves and the students have access to the materials that they need. There's a study out there that says 70% of Americans are against book bans. It's distinctly un-American to ban a book. It's distinctly undemocratic to ban a book. The community really comes around and rallies against that. So we've seen a lot of that. Unfortunately, like I said, this is a very coordinated movement, so it requires kind of a constant attention being paid to this issue. But we've been really lucky to have a lot of wonderful partners on the ground who are doing this work every day. That was WFUV's Jay Doherty in conversation with PEN America's Sabrina Baeda about banned books and free expression. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every week for more features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. And make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast every weekday at 3 for the latest local news and feature stories from FUV. And as always, you can find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Christina Lulich. And that's What's What.